Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Didn't see you there. How are you? Welcome to Homo Sapiens, your number one LGBTQ plus podcast for all your LGBTQ plus needs, queer desires, and many more delights and surprises. I come to you with the rather loud rattling noise of a washing machine in the background. Why, Chris? Why couldn't you turn off the washing machine before you started recording the podcast? Well, let me tell you. As you all know, I've been in Australia. I've been in the Australian outback and... The sun there is something else. It's like so bright, so hot. I don't think they have any ozone layer over Australia. Australians, please feel free to correct me should I be wrong. So I had a beautiful, beautiful rucksack that was black. Being in Australia, it is black no longer. It has been sort of bleached by the sun. It's sort of light grey. So I thought to myself, what am I going to do about this? Because I absolutely love the rucksack. And it cost a pretty penny, I don't mind telling you. So I went over to Lincraft, uh, which is a big craft store in Adelaide, Australia, where I was. And I went in there and I bought some Dylon black fabric dye. And I've put it in the washing machine, which is what you do with it, with my rucksack. And I'm hoping it's going to dye it black again for the mere cost of 15 Australian dollars or something. I'm hoping to spruce it right back up and bring it back to life. I feel like a bit like Carol Smiley on Changing Rooms. You know, on Changing Rooms, they'd always be dyeing a bit of fabric, and it's very much ingrained in my family's history. My mum makes a lot of her own clothes. We love dyeing something. And can I say to you all, listeners, it is such a recommendation. If you want to spruce something up, if you've got like a shirt you don't wear or something, or a pair of jeans or a pair of trousers, and you're like, I don't really wear those, before you chuck them out, can I recommend dyeing them? Go for dark colours because those are the ones that take the best. It has to sort of be cottonish type fabric. Uh, the more natural fibres take on colour better. But it's such a good way to give something a new lease of life. I'll even post a picture for you. I'm going to show you where we got to on the bag. I've got to do this wash. It's gone. It's in at the moment. You have to wash it first once to make it clean. Then you have to wash it with the dye. And then you have to wash it again with soap to sort of make it set in. So we're on stage two right now. It's probably an eight-hour process. Eight hours well spent, I say. Speaking of time well spent, I have got such an exciting interview for you today. We've got none other than talented, delightful, wonderful human being that is Ryan O'Connell. For those of you who don't know, Ryan O'Connell has an amazing TV show on Netflix called Special. It's a comedy about being a gay man with cerebral palsy. Season one, gosh, I think it came out, you know, a couple of years ago now, was really funny, 
really clever, really playful, and made a lot of very brilliant observations about what it is to be a gay man. Brilliant observations about what it is to be the intersection of being a gay disabled man, while always making you laugh and always making you think he is just charming and adorable. And his story is fascinating. So cerebral palsy in in a nutshell, for those who don't know, the sort of Wikipedia definition is a group of permanent movement disorders that appear in early childhood. And it can look very different from person to person who has cerebral palsy. Ryan, his version that he speaks about is, you know, he has a limp and he has hand-eye coordination issues and things like that. So his story is fascinating because he sort of came to prominence because he was blogging and he wrote really brutally honest, clever articles. And then he wrote a memoir called Special that is what he adapted into his TV show. And basically the thread of what's so amazing about his story is that he had cerebral palsy. He has cerebral palsy. And then when he was about 21, he was hit by a car and he didn't like how you know, he was kind of an outsider because he was disabled. This is not even getting into the gay stuff yet. And somebody mistakenly thought that he had a limp, which was part of his cerebral palsy. Uh, They thought he had the limp because he'd had a car crash. And he went along with that lie and therefore was kind of having to lie to people about his disability. And then the story of season one of his show, and this isn't containing any spoilers really, is that you have to watch him live that lie that he tells people that he isn't actually disabled can you hear that 1200 spin starting sorry um but you know my bag will look fabulous and you'll all love the photos um he started telling that lie and the the sort of story of season one is him learning to be honest with everybody about his disability it's beautiful it's poignant it's funny Plus, he made a real point, one of his things is he says, like, he gay sex is his muse, and he made a real point of portraying sex on screen really uh, realistically, gay sex on screen, in a way that is more true to how he has lived it. And I could not agree more. I think part of the great things about season one was the sex scene. So if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. It's available on Netflix. And then season two is also out now, so you can watch that. And it's even more kind of it feels like it's grown up a, it's grown up a notch. It's like, you know, the episodes are twice as long, they're now half an hour. It allows for more kind of detail, but beautiful observations about what it is to be queer, what it is to be different. And we know all about that, don't we, listeners? So I cannot recommend it enough. They sent me a little preview. I loved it. I want to know what you all think of this interview with him. He's such a delight that I hope that you will love it too. Don't forget to get in touch with us so you can share these views. Hello at homosapienspodcast.com, at homosapiens on Instagram. Question for you, listener. Yes, I mean you there eating your cereal. Have you rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts lately? please go and do it. It helps us with, um, you know, it helps us with getting up the charts. And you know what getting up the charts means? Fame and riches. What? Sorry, hang on. Oh, no, it just means um, means more people listen. And the more people listen, the more fun we get to have, right? And maybe that'll coax Sandy Togsvig to come on the show. You never know. Anyway, enough from me and my fabric-dying commune that I've set up. Let's go and have a listen to Ryan O'Connell just as the washing machine finishes. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. 
thank you for doing this. I know that it's Sunday where you are, right? Yeah, but it's a Memorial Day weekend, so I feel like you can like do some work adjacent things and not feel like you've been completely robbed out of a weekend. <laughs> yes, know? and also as a freelancer yourself, do you say freelance in America? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a freelancer. Well, I mean, I get. I mean, I guess I am a freelancer. I don't, babe. I don't know. This like makes me fall down a rabbit hole. Like, what is a freelancer? What is not a freelancer? I think you're a freelancer. You work for yourself. You I are think Ryan I am a O'Connell. You're, Inc. You know what? You're right. <laughs> you're <Yeah>. right, babe. <laughs> Are you just going to start every answer from now on as like speaking as a freelancer? I would like to just say, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be on my bio, like artist, activist, writer, actor, producer, freelancer. <laughs> yeah, but if you, I always find those three day weekends make me feel a bit anxious because I'm like. I could be doing something. This isn't really, I don't deserve this time off. This is a made up thing. You know what I mean? So I quite like doing a little bit of work. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I'm not good with free time. I also just like realized like that I don't have any hobbies. You know what I mean? Like, like, so I feel like work is my hobby. Um, Because when you, when you love what you do, babe, you won't work a day (laughs) in your life. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It is true though, isn't it? It isn't, it isn't. I mean, I feel like I want to just become a more well-rounded individual. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I don't like the feeling that I have no hobbies outside of, like, writing. So I'm on the hunt. Any top contenders? Well, I do like exercising. Is that okay to say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's fine. We can beep it out. Um, yeah, please but... leave it out. I don't want to give exercise yeah. any more publicity. I think exercising is great. And I, you know, I do it myself. I've been really? doing it myself. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's time to speak my truth and tell people that I do. But as I talk about a lot on this podcast, I don't like it. Like, I don't like it. Wait, why don't you like it? Because do endorphins not work for you? I, when I'm exercising, as soon as I begin, all I can think about is how can I make this stop? Mm. <laughs> and I think it's actually to do with... Uh, on a serious note, I think it's to do with like from school, how as a young gay kid, how aggressively traumatizing exercise was mm-hmm. because it was where you, you were just smacked in the face with your own difference of how different mm-hmm. you were. You know, like you had to walk into a room, get naked with a load of people. You did? Well, you know, you have to get changed. Chris, I love that you're just like, you took that as like, I guess we all get naked now. And all the other kids are like, what are you doing? You're like, what? And don't we touch each other's penises? Like, isn't that the part where we, isn't that the part where we go down on each other? You're like, P was really, you're like, P was really traumatizing. And then they like cut to you being like, wait, this isn't what this is. Dot, 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 dot. Yeah. And then you have to go and like catch a ball and like, right. that. And you already did that back in the locker room. So why do it again? <laughs> exactly. But do you know what I mean? It, well, it, yeah, it, what? not to, not to play like the trauma Olympics here, Chris, but you throw it, <laughs> you throw a, you throw a disability in the mix Uh-oh. there. You know, it's, you throw good old CP in the mix. You're like, okay, P is definitely not my favorite subject. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I remember you saying, well, you said it in the, first episode of season one of special like you were too able-bodied to um not able-bodied enough to hang with able-bodied people not disabled enough to hang with disabled people yeah that was very much my journey it was a limbo journey not feeling like my identity was fixed in either direction um you know but luckily i got to make a netflix show about it which i highly recommend for anyone working through their shit (laughs) and it all worked out (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. And I think that required you to do a lot of introspection, right? To land on being able to talk about that, but in a universal way, would you say? Yeah. I don't think I was like super conscious of like putting it through a universal lens necessarily. I just trusted that it would be universal because right. I think about like all the stuff I watched growing up that did not reflect me, but I still found ways to latch onto it and see myself in. And mm-hmm. so I trusted that the audience could do the same for my story. And yes, they did. We stand here today looking at the precipice of season two of Special. It's been a massive hit and this new series is brilliant. So congratulations. Thank you. I loved, loved episode one of season two. One of the things that I loved about it actually in particular was that you're exploring new ground in a way that feels super relevant to conversations that are going on in my life and lots of the LGBT people who listen to this podcast. I also just loved it being longer You know, like I always felt like they were so short before. And I don't know if you struggled with that with the previous series. Yeah, I didn't love it. Um, I felt like we got the short form into the stick. That was definitely like a non-consensual thing. The road to getting special made was so arduous. And really, the only the only place that would actually commission me to write scripts was this place called Stage 13. Uh, which is a division of Warner Brothers, and they were specializing in short-form content. Right. And at that point, I would have made like two two-minute TikTok videos. I didn't, I didn't give a shit. I just wanted it mm. to exist. And so, um, but I did feel like when I was writing season one that I was really cramming of like a half hour's worth um, of material into each fifteen-minute episode, mm. and it was really, really challenging because I felt like certain moments couldn't breathe as well as I wanted them to. I'm really proud of season one, but it definitely it definitely had its limitations for me. And so season two feels like a fully realized version of my art. (laughs) As a freelancer. As a freelancer, exactly. And you said um, that this season is going to be gayer and gimpier. And I just wanted to break down those two elements together and work out what is gayer and what is gimpier about series two. Well, there's more anal sex for sure. Uh-huh. And is that gayer category or is that gimpier category? <laughs> I would say it's a little bit of both yes! depending on the sex. Don't Perfect. You think? Great. Yeah. And then gimpier means that it's just there's more disabled people in season two. Season one, there was only one disabled actor. And it was by really because the character of Ryan kind of lived in this fishbowl and didn't know any disabled mm. people. So it was true to where he was at. But season two... Um, it made sense that he his world would open up and it would widen. So I was really, really excited that we got to work with a bunch of disabled actors. And um, that was a highlight of season two, for sure. Yes. And one of the things I loved about season one was the sex scenes and how you showed it in a very um, unvarnished way, I suppose. And I think a way that has been, I don't know, not really portrayed on screen. And I think we talk about it a lot on this podcast. We actually did a whole episode called LGBTQ plus sex scenes about how and where cinema and television is doing a good job and where it's not doing a good job. And special actually came up as one of the things that was mentioned by people who wrote in just saying, you know, special did it really beautifully. And yeah, I wondered how you arrived at that decision that you wanted to show it in a better way? Well, I've been having gay sex for a long time. And unless I'm doing it wrong, 
uh, I've really noticed that the version we see on screen is not the version that I'm having IRL. Yeah. I feel like gay sex exists in these really narrow slots in TV and film where it's either like forbidden, like, you know, use the, use the spit as a lube and make sure that the door is locked, baby. (laughs) Or it's like this like heavily eroticized porno vibe. Mm. And it's like very, very like stylized and, you know, flashes of perfect abs and oops, oops, oops. Um, and I just felt like there was a really missed opportunity to kind of show anal sex for what it really is, which is, you know, funny, erotic, sexual, humiliating, embarrassing, empowering, you know, all within the same thrust. Yeah, and kind of um, intense. It's really intense, yeah. Super intense. It, but it is, you know, like, I think also when you talk about the portrayal of it on television, I think also the, or in film or whatever, as being very kind of erotic and hot and sexy, that totally translates to uh, real life when people who are having sex with each other who don't necessarily know each other well, they sort of go for that porno vibe, like everyone's sort of pretending to have this certain kind of sex. And I, I think it's... um it's a self-fulfilling loop that we need to try and step away from. And actually we talk about it a lot on this podcast of like, sex is about intimacy, actually. It's not about looking like Pornhub. Yeah, but as gay men, and we've been gifted, I think, uh, a dollop of intimacy issues. So I feel like mm. it, it is hard for us to achieve that through sex sometimes. So I think it's in a weird way, it's safe to kind of go this like performative porny route because it feels like you're not even really in it. You know what I mean? Yes. And that can feel like success. And it's it's just not. No. I mean, maybe to some, but not to me. <laughs> um, you said, did you say gay sex is my muse or sex is my <laughs> muse? Yeah, gay sex. I mean, no, I mean, I think in general, my muse are, is things that have these stigmas attached to it for no reason. Mm. Um, and my muse is things that are not explored the way that they should be and feel like the intersection of disability and gay sex is a sexy, lovely, fun intersection that I love to live mm. in, basically. I will be always, I think, making work that revolves around sex and sexuality. And I just, um, it's really exciting to me. It's always fun to like, not only push the envelope, but come all over it, you know? (laughs) That's not a sentence I saw coming. Um, And do you, uh, that wasn't meant to be a pun, but what what kind of areas do you want to explore more specifically within that? or, Or have you explored in season two? Well, season two, we have, I mean, um, we talk about topping anxiety, which is real, you know, this, this pressure to perform. Um, and we talk about shit on the dick, you mm. know. So, you know, there's no stone left on. Yes. <laughs> but I think as I, I think, you know, fingers crossed, I'll continue to have sex w- with uh, regularity. And I'll be continue to feel inspired and, you know. I'll experience new kinds of humiliations that I'll funnel into my art. You'll need to keep a pen and paper by the bed. Absolutely. So I can just do that during. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. This is, yeah. yeah, this was really humiliating. Do you mind if I just write this down for one second? I feel like I need to get this into 
an episode somehow. Yeah, and they'll feel honored, you know, because representation does matter. Mm. <laughs> but it really does. And did you... Uh, I was thinking about going into season two and the world does feel like it's changing really fast at the moment, which I think is interesting because I think in a sort of cultural sense or on Instagram, it feels like it's changing fast. But at the same time, I don't know how deep down it really is changing, how much attitudes are changing. And I wondered if you felt going into season two, what you were making a show about felt less risky than when you released season one of special uh regardless of the fact that special had been a massive success and people knew it and you now did you just feel that there was more of a space to talk about the kind of show you wanted to make yeah i felt really vindicated especially because i think the most attention season one got was that sex scene which was like my baby yeah um so having everyone get so excited about that was sort of like of course, like we've been waiting for this kind of representation. We've been waiting for this kind of sex scene for a long time. I can't believe it's taken this long. Mm. So yeah, I think whenever, when, I think when anyone receives your work in a positive way, it's, it's incredibly validating, especially like my work in particular resonates on a deeper, more personal level because people like me, queer, disabled, or just quite frankly disabled have historically been ignored. And on a larger note, like we've been castrated by society, you know, we've been reduced to just, you know, dolls with missing private parts. So to have people even accept me, not only accept me, but um, the reason why they like me or connect to me is through, you know, showing me, uh, you know, trip and fall on the ground or get sucked by a sex worker, all these kinds of different things. Mm. Um was incredibly meaningful to me. And it's things that like, I always felt in the back of my head, like, yes, like my existence is not too fringe or too strange. And it's only, you know, straight white men execs who are in their mid fifties named, you know, Tom who like, don't understand me, but like fuck Tom anyway. Um, I've always felt like that in the back of my head. And that's what implored me to never get up, give up on making special, but to have that response, was still incredibly powerful, I think. And, uh, you know, fuck you to all the Toms out there. <laughs> P.S. I'm available for work. But tell us all, oh, you know, it, it'll be a reminder for some because everybody knows so much about your story. But how hard was that journey to get it onto screen? Because I think it's not to be underestimated. Yeah, it was a fucking journey. I mean, you know, even like it started off great let's put it that way like it started off with like four studios wanting to option the book mm. i think holly i think hollywood was like gay disabled that's the new hot marginalized group of people we love <laughs> um and so it was this kind of whirlwind of activity of you know i was a story editor on awkward i had been working only for like a year and a half to two years and all of a sudden i was like being taken out to these fancy dinners and being wooed by these pr- prospective producers that wanted to like tell my story and it was like wow i guess i've made it oh my god amazing cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, and then I went with Jim Parsons and his partner Todd uh, because... I just really liked them. Um, they weren't they weren't weird, and I didn't feel like they were just doing it for the novelty. They had started this production company called That's Wonderful, and I was their first project. There was something I really liked about us embarking on this journey together for the first time. Mm. Like we weren't we weren't jaded, you know what I mean? Like we <laughs> weren't these like old Hollywood bitches, like you know, being like, ah, honey, gather around the campfire. I got to tell you some stories. Like it wasn't like that at all. I think we were like both like we were all bright eyed and bushy tailed and, you know, kind of naive. And we we definitely made the show, you know, the one that we had pitched was definitely the show we wanted to make. And I, re- I remember also like my agents at the time really wanted me to go to network television. Mm. So ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. Back then, even in 2015, network TV was more of a thing, like it mattered more. And so like. And also the money there is incredible. So like what you would do is you would always go to network first and pitch. And if they didn't like it, you'd go to cable, almost like tail between your legs, like, I guess, whatever. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to ABC. I'm not going to NBC. I'm not going to these places. Like, are you kidding me? Like, they're going to, they're going to probably buy it because they're like, whoa, game disabled. That's crazy. And then they're going to be like, what the fuck did we actually just buy? And also, I knew from the very, very beginning with Special that I wanted to explore sexuality in a really honest way. Mm. There's no way you can do that on an ABC sitcom. Like, I would be lucky if my character got to kiss a boy, for God's sakes. So it's funny, like, in that moment, I was so naive about so many things, and I felt like I was being pulled in so many different directions, but I actually appreciate past me for having the balls to be like, no. Like, this is what I want. I want to go to cable, all that stuff. Just to pause you there for one second, will you just give a very quick rundown for Brits who the definition between network and cable is so distinct to America? Because network is like massive channels for like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and big shows like that, right? Yes. And they're quite mass market, let's say. Yeah. So back, so back in the day, network television was the God. It was like friends. It was Will and Grace. Mm. It was very typical for, for a show to get like 20 million viewers, like nonstop. Like everyone watched broadcast network television. Then the network sitcoms kind of fell behind the times. Like they just like, like they, like basically it's very sanitized Mm. because they're still in bed with advertisers. So like they have to make sure their content is like good for Kraft macaroni and cheese or like Charmin ultra bounty paper towels. Then streamer, then streamers come along and they're like, Oh, we actually don't have any ads. You can make whatever the fuck you want. It's all subscriber based. Creatively, you have carte blanche to do whatever the fuck you want. If you want it to be raunchy, if you want it to be this, like do whatever you want. That was pretty revolutionary. Anyway, 
now network TV to me doesn't it has probably like 0.5 percent of the power it once had in the 90s mm-hmm. um like no one really watches it anymore and it's because they're it's it's all fear driven like they won't actually tell stories that are like relevant it's always like it's like i imagine them on this like deserted island that gets information like five years late <laughs> like okay like if they're like wow let's do an episode about like sexism and you're like Honey, what are you talking about? But it's, it, um, yeah, and it, but it's so relevant for your show because it's like you, if you're going to tell this story, it needs to be not used as like that, that element just picked up and dropped on to a story that can please everybody as a bit of window dressing. Like you need to actually tell the story that's authentic to the person who's having the experience. And that in its DNA is going to be not mass market and therefore stripped out uh, exactly there's well there's definitely i think when it's mass market there's this pressure to appeal to everybody Mm. which to me is a huge fallacy that execs can't seem to grasp because it's like if you try to appeal to everybody you appeal to no one because your your product becomes so watered down so i i've seen this happen i i did this punch up on a network comedy once and a punch up is when you make something funnier right you go through the script to make it funnier yeah right and I saw it in real time, the pilot go from like pretty funny and like had a distinct point of view. And then through the course of the day, like the teeth was taken out. It was defanged and defagged and all these things. Mm. And like, it was like, at the end of the day, it was just like gibbity gobbity goop. Like it was just nothing. Like mm. it said nothing. It stood for nothing. Um, and it was a shame because it started out actually really good and it just got worse and worse. And I think that, again, when you're trying to appeal to so many people, you get so nervous and there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, there's definitely a version of special that exists on a network, but it's more after school special than special. Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of the one of well, the main thread of season one was and I'm saying this to you. I know you know this and I know you know, I know as in just for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it was about revealing a massive secret in season one, right? That you had lied. Right. You'd lied to everybody who you worked with saying that the reason you had a limp is because you had a car crash. And actually that wasn't true. It's because you had CP. And by the end, you were able to tell them. And that is, that's basically relating about secrets, right? And everybody's got that secret. Yes. And that was what was so beautifully crafted about it because it was so you know, you could just watch it and go, oh my God, I've done that. Like, I've totally done that and have felt what that feels like. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we've all lied or lied by omission to make ourselves seem better or more palatable or fit in or whatever. Mm. I mean, in the case of special, I did do that. I got hit by a car. I moved to New York. I want to see my accident. Uh, My limp was from my accident. And I never bothered to correct them. And in a way, it was a perfect lie because no one really knows what cerebral palsy looks like. And it's not like people come up to you and be like, so how's your CP doing? Yeah. Still still, uh, still around? You haven't got rid of that yet? <laughs> like there's not, you know what I mean? Mm. So um, it was a perfect lie. But obviously when you lie about who you are, uh, it's going to maybe buy you a couple years of the I love myself fair. But eventually the, the time's going to run out and you're going to have to you know, do some soul searching. Yeah. And do you, do you remember that moment when someone first, cause it happened in real life uh, uh, and you based, you put it in the show, right? But do you remember the first moment 
that someone had made that mistake and you decided to go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, I was starting school at the new school in New York and it was about nine months after my accident. I took a semester off and I transferred um, and I was really nervous because I thought, I mean, there there's things on my body that are from my accident and there are things on my body from cerebral palsy. So I thought like I was going to have to like Lewis and Clark, like give a roadmap to like, mm-hmm. like what was going on. And I was so nervous because I just thought, well, that's a great way to start uh, a relationship. It's just like, here are all the things that are fucked up exactly. about my body. Um, so when someone just, uh, assumed and was like, so like, you know, are you, is this limp like permanent? Like, you know, whatever I, my mind was totally blown. I mean, it was just such a shortcut. And to me, getting hit by a car is something that is very relatable and easy for anyone to understand. Um, cerebral palsy is something that happens to you at birth. Yeah. You either have it or you don't. Mm. A lot of people don't understand cerebral palsy. They don't understand how it manifests because quite frankly, cerebral palsy looks different on everybody. Mm. Like it really does run the gamut. So it's like you could see two people with cerebral palsy and never guess that they each had the same thing. So there's just a general lack of understanding and education around CP. And that made me feel extraordinarily different in a way that I didn't want to be different growing up. Um, So an accident victim felt like easy breezy, beautiful cover girl by comparison. Yes. Is there a part of it when you're at school, particularly where people probably don't care at all about what specifically is your personal situation but at at the risk of saying something wrong or offending you they just don't ask and therefore they avoid you and that's actually just as isolating as the thing that you've got you know whether that be cerebral palsy or anything you know yeah having a disability is definitely a mindfuck of an experience because you feel like there is a spotlight on you wherever you go, Mm. but then you're also simultaneously erased and ignored. So it's like, Mm. you know what I mean? It's like being visible in HD, but then also being completely invisible. So it's a, it's a weird thing to navigate. You know, you see people highlight you and then kind of erase you in the same moment. Yes. Because they don't really know what to do with you or they're too skittish or makes them uncomfortable. Were there any people who you had around you at that time who didn't make you feel like that? Well, I mean, no one no one asked me about my disability. Mm. I think they all kind of picked up. I came out of, about my CP when I was 28. I think before that, the friends I had growing up before my accident just understood that I didn't want to speak about my CP, that right. it was a, a no-fly zone, conversation-wise. And then the people that I met post-accident were living, I was living with in New York and they just assumed everything was from accident. So they treated me like anyone else. Mm. I mean, any, anyone in my life that I was close to treated me like anybody else, but it was really getting over those like first impressions and having to deal with strangers staring at you and all that stuff. Yeah. That was the difficult part. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were saying that in, in special Ryan is a lot more kind of awkward and nervous and all those things. But in fact, you at school you you weren't like that you were actually really funny and you know had loads of friends and stuff is that right yeah and I think it's because I realized really early on like in this world being gay and disabled I was like okay she's gonna need some Houdini tricks up her sleeves to make <laughs> yes, it through yes. like I was like all right <laughs> time to pull a rabbit out of a fucking hat yeah I think I was just very very cognizant of the work 
it was going to take to be palatable and to be disarming and to be funny and to put people around me at ease and make everyone around me feel so comfortable with like this complicated package. So, you know, I'm grateful for that in some ways because it, it really allowed me to hone a sharp sense of humor, which made you the freelancer you are today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My sense of humor bought me a house, so it was great. Hmm. But I mean, like, you know, it's, uh, it was also exhausting and I don't yeah. think I even was aware of the, the emotional fatigue and the emotional labor that I was constantly going to have to do. But I think anyone, honestly, that's not a straight white male can relate to that. Yes. We all as marginalized people are so hypersensitive to how we're being perceived. And I think our go-to muscle memory is always, okay, how do I make this person just feel totally cool with my existence? And that involves code switching yeah. and all this other shit. Um, yes. I mean, now I just don't give a shit. I really don't. So it's been very freeing, I think. It's really funny you say that because obviously, like, it's an, it, it, I can relate to lots of elements of it. But if you're around straight white men at the moment, and I don't want to demonize anybody, I think it's counterproductive. But uh, no, but by the way, it's not demonizing them. It's just like acknowledging that yes. they're privileged, which is like, which is not, again, you can't help how you're born. No. But it's also like, they're born into a world that is meant for them. Like, it's like everything, everything that is produced is for them. Like, I remember, Mm. like, the outrage of, like, Lena Dunham in Girls is, like, basically just a bunch of straight white men being like, well, I don't want to fuck her, so how does she have a TV show? (laughs) Like, there was so, they were, they were so, in you know what I mean? It was so ingrained in them that everything they're consuming with TV and film is meant for them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, but, um, I was with, some straight white men i'm so sorry i know do you need to talk about it it's fine i've put google maps on my phone i'll never get lost again but they were sort of doing that thing of like oh you know we're just you know in the crosshairs for everything and everything's our fault you know and i don't understand it and like blah blah and they were sort of trying to ask me to explain like what the issue was and i was sort of saying that thing about like well everything's built for you so it just comes naturally you know or whatever they didn't really get it and we moved on and it was sort of like a half half conversation anyway and then later on i was with one of them and something happened that they weren't pleased with and they were such a grumpy fuck about it and i literally was like that is what i'm talking about that you think it's okay to just go when you don't like something whereas actually everybody else of any kind of minority is start singing for their supper and trying to manipulate and make sure it's okay you know you don't you don't get to throw your toys out the pram you have to bend and code switch and shift shape shift and all of those things right yeah we swallow so much and we do so much emotional gymnastics Mm. every single day and i i remember me too me too broke when i was in a writer's room with a bunch of straight white men in their 50s which you can guess was a journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you, 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 you know, I was seeing these, these straight white men that were very affluent and privileged and had been working in television for a very long time. So they all had nice houses and blah, blah. But I think by virtue of being comedy writers, always saw themselves as the outsiders, not exactly the, the symbol of masculinity as we have known it, mm. blah, blah, blah. So I think that they had some outsider status that they had really, felt connected to. Yes. That was a big, you know what I mean? And so I think what's interesting about it is I think that straight white men don't 
some of them obviously don't see their lives as being particularly easy. So I think it's really hard for them to understand just the inherent privilege they have just by existing, mm. just as literally like walking down the street and not having to worry about, you know, cops shooting them or whatever. Like there's just a baseline level of comfort and privilege that they have that they don't understand. And I think that they feel threatened by conversations around calling them privilege because they maybe have never identified as such. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about delineating, like, you know, we're just saying that there's been a baseline advantage to being a straight white male in this world, but that doesn't negate your feelings of feeling less than or not fitting into this typical toxic masculinity mold. You know what I mean? Because masculinity mm-hmm. is a prison in its own, but it's like, it's almost like they they're triggered by it and they're threatened by that because they do want to hold on to that stat, their outsider status. And they want to feel, they don't necessarily feel again, like they've been gifted every opportunity or whatever, mm. but it's really just about separating it based on like privilege that you're born with just inherently by the the body that you were born into or whatever. Mm. And then, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And it-, it does. And two things that spring to mind from what you're saying is like, all you have to do when you discover that privilege, because as a gay white man, hello, like, it's basically the same, you know, like, uh, in terms of if we're going to put in the, you know, the tree of privilege, right, you've just got to listen more, you know, like, that's the thing is I get this kind of, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't do anything right. And blah, blah, blah. that's the kickback I often get from straight white men. And I'm like, honestly, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just asking you to listen more and be a bit more compassionate. Yes. And just look around as you're doing things, not just do go for it, you know? But they're so used to like monologuing to everyone. Mm. Like, like, okay. So during the, during the me too thing of it all being in the, that was, I had my own radicalized journey during that year. And I mean, obviously beyond just recognizing how pervasive sexual assault was and how much women mm. had to put up with, in overt and, you know, implicit and explicit ways. Like beyond that, I would look around me and I would just see like the straight white guy at my gym, like engaging the barista, the female barista in like non-consensual conversation about his band. And Mm. like how like the girl, the girl was just like smiling and nodding, but secretly being like, okay, take your latte and then please leave. But he just like set up shop and was just like talking her ear off. And I was like, wait, this is psychotic. I was like, I am so aware of like again everyone's comfort that like i would never overstay my welcome in a conversation where i was not wanted yes um you know obviously this podcast notwithstanding um, <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome um, thank thank you um no but do you know what i'm saying like i would just yeah. and i would see it everywhere i went i would see like straight white guys just like overstepping and like not recognizing boundaries and just like asserting themselves in things where they didn't belong. And it like, it truly blew my G damn mind. I couldn't get over it. I was like, this is wild. It's like seeing the matrix, isn't it? Suddenly you're like, I can yeah, see all the ones and, and zeros. And it was around me all the time. It was like, like, and it was just, again, it was accepted that, that really, really blew my mind. And like just seeing it play out at work and seeing, you know, straight white guys cut off the women in the room mm. with their pitches and whatever. I remember my favorite part of that whole experience was when one, so, so seeing them recognize this stuff was painful and awkward and infuriating. But I also, I remember one writer being like, I've never thought of myself as privileged. And he said it in this really earnest way that I couldn't be mad at him for. It really was this like natural kind of like, huh, like light bulb moment. Mm. But then others, but then others 
was like this guy being like, you know, guys, I just think it's time we listen to women. And then one of the one of the females in the room goes, thank you. So I was saying, and he goes, hold on, I'm not finished yet. And I was like, this is honestly, you yeah. can't write this. I mean, I mean, you can. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write it down and use it in something. Uh, but it was so delicious and so psychotic <laughs> that I just like feasted, I feasted off that interaction. That was my diet for like two weeks. You know what I mean? Like I just like feasted off that interaction. It was so unhinged and bizarre. Yeah. And um, it was just, as they say, a chef's kiss. Gorgeous. <laughs> yes, and like I have found that I need to also check myself for when I do things like that. You know what I mean? It's not like like straight white men and their privileged behavior is not something like 400 miles away on the horizon. It's like, it's pretty much adjacent to me, one. And, you know, like yeah. I have noticed I, I over the past five years, like I've really noticed that like I did used to talk over people, you know, like I would talk over people mm-hmm. in a meeting and that's really unacceptable. And you behave in a way that you assume certain things will go your way. And it's, you know, like, or the other thing is like how it's really irritating that men, this is generalizing, but men often try and problem solve when someone tells them a problem rather than listening. And I used to do that loads. And I was like, I actually need to just learn to listen more. But I also think the extra complex thing on top of it, when I started to deconstruct that was... I think sometimes I used to subconsciously like being in that space because from an old, old historic thing, it sort of made me feel a bit more straight. And it was sort of like, you know, you kind of realize that you don't fit those those codes as you're growing up. So when you do sit in them, you're like, oh, okay, that's a little bit of success for me being uh, less noticeably gay, right? Right. And actually yeah. then, but then you realize this is all bullshit. And, but all these things happen in tandem as you grow older and start to love yourself a little more. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, assimilation is viewed as an achievement. Yeah. It's something to strive for. It's the whole idea of like passing, you mm. know, you're being masked or whatever. It's all really complicated. And you can't fault someone initially for that because they, again, they just want to fit in. Yes. Um, but, but beyond, I mean, white gays are their own journey, I think because of like, well, the velvet rage of it all, but also like, I think because they're, because of their close proximity to the top tier of privilege, which is straight white maleness, mm. it's almost like they're pissed off that they were so close. <laughs> <laughs> They were almost there. And then a gorgeous dick had to get in the way. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yes. So I think there's a little resentment a little bit. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And it's funny because like, I, I always have felt that like one of the things that I feel very lucky about nowadays is like I was incredibly feminine as a kid. And actually that's, that excluded me more than my gayness. Like people didn't really. By the way, I want the listeners to know that you're saying this while like being, you're sitting in this way that I think defies logic. (laughs) And it is sort of feminine. I have to say. It's very tangled. Call you out. Call. Yeah, it's like very gay. It's a very gay sit. Yes. Um, so the timing of that was stunning and I appreciate it. Thank you. And you see, I used to hate myself for sitting like that. I used to like really, and actually kind of linked to the two things I just said is like, so I'm a director, right? I direct TV shows and I always noticed on set when you're being a director, which is traditionally a very straight white male role, 
people used to mimic the way I moved. Like they would sort of not understand the way I was on set because I think I'm quite inherently feminine and who cares? But it used to, people used to just call it out all the time. And I was like, that's really interesting because why you want something different from me? You know, you want me to be this certain way. And actually I so made such a decision of like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this the way I want to do it, you know, and I'm going to show you that it's absolutely correct and right as, as any other way to behave on a set, a film set. Cause they are a bit like the army, you know, like it's very, they're strange places. Um, but I think my femininity made me very excluded from that idea of being so close that you're describing. Right. Because yeah, because you didn't have like your closet wasn't like a giant walk in. It was like a little coffin. No. And also like I just people just excluded me like the straight boys just excluded me because I was just a bit weird. You know what I mean? And right. everybody has their own thing. You know, it's not like the trauma Olympics, like you say, but uh, I'm actually very grateful for that is what I'm saying, because I think that meant that I got to go and hang out with the people who were more unusual and therefore, in my opinion, a lot more interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It, it Like in the short term, it's very painful, but in the long term, it actually ends up serving you because you don't have the, you don't have the quote unquote luxury mm. to cosplay as someone else. You have no choice but to be yourself. So in a way, exactly. right? I mean, isn't that? Yeah. And, kind of the vibe. and me and my husband talk about this a lot because he's he was able to cosplay and I'm always yeah. I'm like that's fucking high. <laughs> <laughs> um but yes but you know it's like it's actually I'm like you know don't cosplay let them know unless you want to cosplay in the bedroom in which case I support and it's all complicated and no one will kink shame yes <laughs> that's the end of part one of our interview with Ryan O'Connell skip on over to the feed and have a listen to part two Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.